I'm excited. We are starting a brand new series today that's going to lead us to Easter. And maybe that's not on your radar yet, but in five weeks or six weeks from this Sunday, we celebrate Easter together as a church community, Good Friday on Friday. Uh, But we're going to start today and kind of start a path and a journey towards Easter together in a really important theme. Just as I start that off, how many people saw the movie A Star is Born? Anybody see that? How many have heard the song on the radio 700 times? Okay. So, so this is a fictitious story, right, about um, a girl named Allie and a guy named Jack. And uh, Jack is a big musician and kind of big uh, singer star. And Allie is a singer, but nobody knows her. She just sings in random places, writes songs in her bedrooms that no one ever really gets to hear except a few people in her local town. And, and one day she meets Jack and uh, they kind of hit it off, and, and, and she starts to share some of her lyrics with him and some of her music uh, with him. And, uh, you know, she kinda, he, he uses his platform to, uh, to really give her music life and an audience for people to hear. And we were watching the movie, my wife and I, and um, our kids as well, we were sitting through it, and I'm, I love music, but I don't love musicals. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I like music, but I don't love musicals, and I, I don't always love movies with a lot, a lot of music in them, um, even though I like music. And I was sitting here listening, watching this movie, and um, it hit me, kind of reminded me how powerful music can be when this simple melody just draws people in. Have you ever been in a moment where a melody that someone sings or even just in an instrument just draws you right in and you start to realize the power of music? Now, when you think about music, if Matt, uh, John, can you put this up a second? So when you think about music, can you, yeah, there you go. So music is like 12 notes, right? And so, you know, eight on a scale, but like notes in between. And it's really just like... Right? That's like a scale. When you guys were four years old, maybe you learned that scale or something. And so it's just a simple scale, right? And, and really it's math because inside these, these eight large notes, there's semitones, so there's 12 notes. And on a piano, it's repeated like eight times. And you can go up or down and all that kind of stuff. And it's really mathematical. It's like logical. It's almost scientific. And then someone writes a song. And all you do, it's like if I were to say, to say the numbers of the notes of this song that that Lady Gaga made popular, it's like four, 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 three. That doesn't sound really inspirational, right? But then like this melody comes in and it's like, do you guys know this thing? It's just so, it's a really nice melody. Na, na, na. Anyways. But that's just math, right? It's just notes and 12 of them, semitones put together, and you just choose which ones you're going to play. And then you're sitting somewhere, and these notes are put together, and you feel something that's much deeper than just math or the separation of notes or four, 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 three, two, 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 three, one, right? Doesn't, it feels different. And I was thinking about that, that, that idea that inside this, these things that are so logical, yet there's something that is so much bigger than we can often even imagine because it hits us in a way that's more powerful than us just figuring all that kind of stuff out. And as we start this series over the next few weeks, 
Um, it's called Bigger Than You Think because I want us to walk through this journey of maybe discovering or rediscovering the cross. And sometimes you've heard about the cross or someone has explained the way of salvation and they've explained it in like three points and over 60 seconds and it's like, oh, I, I get it. And yet, underneath all that, it's so much bigger than we realize. It's so much bigger than we think. And over the next few weeks, uh, I want us to, 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 to take, you know, just take a step back and we're going to look at, at elements in the scriptures um, about the cross and about what Jesus accomplished on the cross and try and understand it uh, maybe in fresh light in new ways. And I want to start this way with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse um, 17 and 18. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you can turn there or it's going to be on the screen, but we're going to be just looking out of this chapter today in, um, just in a, more, in a little bit of a deeper way. And, and I'm going to just start. We're going to, we're going to kind of walk through the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, but we're going to do it piece by piece. And so here's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 to 18, and I just want to read these first uh, few verses with you. So if you just follow along with us on the screen or in your Bibles. So Paul ends a section and then moves into another section. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's just pause there for a second. Lord, as we look through this text this morning, this first century letter to this first century church, as we open our hearts to what you want to do in us, we just, may our hearts say yes to you and all you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a few things going on at the start of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in a, in a Roman city called Corinth. And he, he kind of puts all his cards on the table. He kind of puts everything on the table to let us know where his heart is at. And he makes sure that we understand his message and his method for uh, seeing people's lives connected to God and, to, and transformed. Right on the outset, as he starts this letter, as he jumps into this first chapter or two, and this letter is a unique letter in the New Testament letters because it tends to be very corrective because the Corinthians were going through a difficult uh, time and, and varied off and uh, veered off in different ways uh, in terms of their faith and their life. But he starts off and he wants them to understand right off the top that his message, what his message is and what his method is for seeing people's lives transformed and connected to God. It's one thing, one priority, one message. And he says, highlights it in this first little bit, even later on in this chapter, in chapter two, I preach the message of the cross. He uses the word gospel in verse 17. He uses the word cross in verse 18. He uses the phrase Christ crucified later on in chapter one and in chapter two. But what he's getting at is the climactic moment in God's redemptive story where God's son is crucified on a cross. He's getting to the core of his message and his method, and we'll see that in a moment, that centers around the death of Jesus. Now, Paul's just as interested in Jesus' life, no doubt, and he's just as interested in Jesus' resurrection. In fact, we would have never had the cross if Jesus was, never came to earth, and we wouldn't really know about the cross, probably, if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Hundreds of people were on crosses in Rome that week or month. But 
Something significant about his death was a game changer. In fact, something seems to happen in Paul's view, in Paul's experience, and we'll look into that in a moment, when he announces the death of Jesus. I mean, when he tells us the whole gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was buried, uh, died, was buried, and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, that's kind of like his summary of the gospel. It's, it's important. But here he tells us something significant happens when the death of Christ is announced, unlike anything else he ever tells people. And Paul is a teacher, and he's a speaker, and he started churches, so he's spoken a lot to people. But something seems to happen when he announces the death of Jesus. To his audience. And so what we see here in this small way, but bigger in the whole New Testament, there's this fascination with the cross. And we see it in the New Testament. We see it in the early church. We also see it throughout church history, history itself. If you read through the, the four Gospels in your New Testament, you will notice that there's a trajectory in all of those four Gospels, and they all lead towards the cross, they all lead towards a big chunk of their Gospels captivated by the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, we know that Jesus is born. We know that he grows. We know that he starts his ministry. He calls his disciples. We hear about the, the teachings and the miracles and the healings and, the, and his authority. But it seems as though all the Gospels have this journey towards the cross as the climax of the story. John's gospel can be split into two phrases. Jesus saying the hour has not yet come and Jesus saying the hour has come. What he's meaning, the hour, is the time he's going to be put on a cross. The hour has not yet come. Oh, now there's a shift in John's gospel. The hour has come. There's this moment in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, this, this scene in, in, in the crucifixion where there's this Roman centurion, this Roman soldier, and he's, part, he's like participating in the crucifixion. You know, we'd, maybe he was one of the people who hoisted Jesus on the cross. Maybe he lifted the cross up. Maybe he saw Jesus like literally just fall into this horrific place on this cross. And we see this moment, and Mark describes it in such a, a vivid way and listen to what he says. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, look what he says. He said, surely this man is the, was the son of God. Isn't that crazy? When you just think about that for a moment, that this Roman soldier who was part of crucifying Jesus probably heard about him, heard about his teachings, heard about his miracles, heard about the declaration that he's Israel's Messiah. When he looks at Jesus on the cross, there's this revelation that takes place and the Roman centurion says, this is the Son of God. Why in that moment? Why when Jesus is at his most vulnerable, weakest state, does the Roman soldier understand the identity of Jesus? Jesus said in John chapter 8, 28, when you have lifted up, and lifted up is a, is a metaphor for being put on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize I am He. Jesus knew that the cross was the climax of His purpose. You ever watch a TV series, whatever it might be, maybe it's one or two or three seasons, and if you're lucky, the network doesn't cancel the series, right? When you get to the end of it, if there's a closure, often it's like 
there's, there's, a, a, there's something that happens in the last one or two episodes where you sit back and you say, oh, this is where everything was headed. Oh, I, oh, now I get like season one and now I know why this person did this and now I understand what, what was going on here. Now I get it. It was all leading to this moment. Have you ever been in that, in that kind of situation where it's a movie or, or a series? It's like, oh, I get it. Now I see where this was headed. And that's kind of what's happening with the cross. John tells us that when Jesus is on the cross, his last words are these words, it is finished. In the original language, it means everything is completed. Everything is completed. Jesus utters these words from the cross. Fleming Rutledge, a really great female author, pastor, speaker, she wrote a wonderful book on the crucifixion. And she says, Jesus' work was only provisional until his crucifixion. Almost as if, yes, all these things were happening, so vital, so important, part of the whole gospel, part of God's plan. But they were all leading up to this moment. And as you read through the letters in the New Testament and read through the early church writings post that, they were fascinated with the cross. There was something about the cross. Several years ago, uh, maybe over 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, the director of this British museum, his name was Neil McGregor. Uh, he, was, he directed this British museum, really popular one, for about 10 years. And, and his last piece that he acquired for the museum before he moved on to a, another job in, in Berlin, the last piece he required before moving to another position was this simple and haunting cross. If you can just put it on the screen. This simple cross. It's simple and in some ways very unique because the fragments of wood that were used to make this cross were from a boat that was carrying refugees from Eritrea and Somalia. And this boat was wrecked off the coast of Italy, south of Sicily. On October 3rd, 2003, This boat was wrecked off the coast, and 349 of the 500 refugees all drowned. And this local craftsman, his name was Francesco Tuccio, he was so distressed that nothing more could have been done to save the people that he made several crosses out of the fragments out of the wrecked boat. He just didn't know what else to do to somehow come to terms and wrestle through the suffering that happened. Apparently, Pope Francis carried one of those crosses at the memorial service that he made. And Mr. Tuccio made a cross especially for the museum, thinking of that, thanking them for just drawing attention to the suffering that this small little wooden cross would symbolize. And, and you've got to stop and think, why a cross? Why did he think of a cross? Why did he take the wood and make a cross? Why didn't he make something else? Why didn't he make pieces of furniture for the rest of the families? Why, why didn't he create some kind of monument? Why didn't he create some kind of memorial? Why didn't he create maybe a sign with words or letters that honored all the people that, that died? I'm not sure, but when he tried to wrestle with the suffering, when he tried to wrestle with the pain, when he tried to wrestle with the situation, he made crosses. Why a cross? It's so strange because think about a cross. People like to hold crosses. Some people like to hang them around their neck. Some people tattoo them on their skin. Some people paint them in beautiful paintings. Some people look at them while they're praying. Some people make the sign of the cross to pay respects for someone or before they have a job interview. I don't know. But the cross is everywhere. Why do people look 
to the cross so often. And Paul starts this letter, and he's preoccupied with the cross. And we can't just say cross. I'm saying cross. We can't just say cross. We must say crucifixion. We must say crucifixion. Because people have been assassinated, and people have been murdered, and people have been killed, and people have been poisoned. But crucifixion is different. And we must say crucifixion because this is how Jesus died. And interestingly enough, the crucifixion bothered people. It created tension in people. The onlookers, the, the, the religious people, uh, the people in the city, the, the, the political people, even the followers of Jesus, it created a tension for them. To some it was a scandal, to some it was senseless. But this is so vital to just grasp. The crucifixion is what God used to rescue the world. The crucifixion is what God used to rescue the world from the power of sin and reconcile humanity into his purposes. God used a crucifixion to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was around in the early 19th, 20th century. He says, God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. Just stop for, think about this for a second. The cross was not religious when Jesus hung on it. The cross was secular. The cross was irreligious. The cross was, was violent. The cross was an instrument that Rome used to not only kill people, but to utterly humiliate them. The cross was not just meant to kill people. The cross was meant to humiliate people and rob them of their dignity. It was Rome's way of saying to anyone who hung on the cross or that they put on the cross, you are garbage. That was Rome's way of, 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 of saying that about someone. You are garbage. You are nothing. And no one will ever remember you. And hundreds of people were crucified by Rome. Nobody knows their names. It was Rome's way of saying, you are garbage. Cicero, a Roman, a Roman orator in the first century, calls it the most cruel and terrifying penalty. Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century, says, says it's the most pitiable of all deaths. Origen, a church father, says in the second century, says it's the most shameful form of death. When N.T. Wright researched first century Palestine and Judaism and under the Roman Empire, he said, these words are on the screen, the very mention of crucifixion was taboo in polite Roman circles since it was the lowest form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and rebels. So at the office counter or hanging out over lunch, if someone happened to mention crucifixion, it'd be like, why, why are you talking about crucifixion? Like I'm eating lunch, please, why are you talking about crucifixion? If people are hanging out at the local market or the plaza or they're buying food and someone comes along and they maybe mention this crucifixion, they're like, hey, I'm buying vegetables for my family right now. Could you stop talking about crucifixion? It wasn't something that was talked about. It wasn't something that was said in, in polite circumstances because it was the lowest form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and rebels. And it was this humiliation which Jesus took on willingly as he went to the cross. So, so often, you know, people will call, you're going through a difficult situation. They're like, hey, it's your cross to bear. Pick up your cross. And sometimes people make you feel guilty, almost like you have to suffer physically when we say pick up your cross. And 
That, that phrase, pick up your cross, is, is, is less a call to physical suffering and death for us, although some Christians, many over history, have died as a consequence to their faith. But it's less a call to suffer physically and more reflecting the humility and the humiliation that Jesus took on by being crucified. And and it was this posture, this path that he took that contrasts power, that contrasts the violence of Rome, that that contrasts the the hunger for greed, whether it's, it's Rome or North American or Western or any other empire or world power. It was a contrast to power and violence and greed. And strangely enough, it was uniquely Christian. No other religion worshipped a crucified man. And that's why there was tension. No other religion worshipped a crucified man. That was uniquely Christian. And no other faith or religion had this, this idea, this, this belief, this, this faith that God entered the stage of human history through a man who happened to be Jewish who got pinned on a Roman cross. No other faith ever had that stance. No faith has that as part of their belief. And so when we ask this question, like, man, this fascination with the cross and this tension with the cross, think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's writing to this, this first century church, and in this letter he includes this poem or song. It's very familiar to some of us uh, as, as, uh, as written, but here's just one line from it. So just before this line, it's not on the screen, but, you know, Paul says that Jesus was very equal with God, you know, didn't consider e- equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. And then he says, and being found in human appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's the posture of Jesus. By becoming obedient to death. Now, he could have just left it there because Jesus died. He could have just said, hey, Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death. And I'd be like, Wow. Jesus died. I mean, that's bad enough. But the song and the poem continues and says, even death on a cross. Because it's not only his death, but the way he died that matters. Fleming Rutledge says, the manner of Christ's death stamped the character of faith for all time. Stamped the the character of faith for all time. And don't like um, think that just because we, you know, we, we, wor- we worship on Good Friday, we celebrate Easter, we talk about the cross so much. I want us to just reflect for a moment what it meant even in that time period, how much tension crucifixion created, and even it would today. Think of Paul's audience for a moment. Paul spoke to Jews, that was kind of like his initial original circle, and then he spoke to Gentiles and Greeks, and that was a growing circle for him as he planted churches. Well, Jews were looking for something special from God, a special way that God would rescue them from their own fallen state and from Rome's oppression. They're like, God, when are you going to show up? God, how are you going to do this? God, we're looking for something big for you to do to rescue us from our fallen state, to rescue us uh, even from our sin, but to rescue us from this, opp- this, just this oppression from Rome. And crucifixion did not fit that hope. When the Jews, some that maybe thought, oh, maybe this is the guy, and then he's crucified, they're like, he's not the guy. 
Because crucifixion didn't fit their, their idea of hope. Something that God would do. Some sign that God would do. The Greeks were looking for some elite wisdom to show them like this way to a better life. You know, if we can find this, this wisdom, this intellect, this insight to this. And crucifixion was not wisdom for them. Crucifixion was not insightful. Crucifixion was not smart. So the religious, they're, you know, often need something more uplifting than crucifixion. And the secular intellects, they need something smarter than crucifixion. And yet God chose crucifixion as the method to rescue the world from the power of sin and reconcile the world into his purposes. Now just add to that for a second. As Paul's wrestling with this, as Corinth is wrestling with this, there was this common uh, teaching that was kind of subtle inside some Christian sects called Gnosticism. At the time, and Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. And it was this idea that that some people possessed this elite knowledge. They were they were just they were blessed with this wisdom. They found this spark of wisdom, and only they found it. And so Gnosticism had two things about it. One was yes, this elite group of people would possess this knowledge, and it wasn't possible for everyone. Just a few, just a select few. But the other idea of Gnosticism is they completely separated the divine and the human. They, they separated the possibility that divinity could interact with humanity. And so for them, it was unfathomable that God could die on a cross. It's, it, 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 was, it was crazy. Because if divinity doesn't connect with humanity, how could divinity be hung on a cross and bleed? And so that was like out for them. And here comes Paul, verse 20 to 24. Let's read this together. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the, the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul's admitting something. He's, he's saying something that's, that's kind of letting us know that, that makes the power of the cross even more believable for me because if you sit back and maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you're skeptical about this or maybe you're wondering like, why, how, is this, how is this really powerful? And, and think about Paul's life for a moment. The fact that he's admitting this makes it even more believable for me because the, the, crucifixion, the crucifixion messed up or messed with both of Paul's circles. Think about that. Paul was a Jew, very pharisaical, very religious, very zealous. He was like your typical religious person. And so he was the optimal religious zealot. He's, he hung around those circles before he started to follow Jesus. But Paul was also your rare educated Roman citizen. So he hung around the intellectual circles. So Paul, he hung around the religious circles and Paul hung around the intellectual circles. Paul was kind of like the Jew and the Greek all in one. And yet, how powerful and beautiful Jesus must have been to break through both of those circles for Paul. The religious person who was looking for a sign and the intellectual person who was looking for wisdom. And here comes the crucified Jesus. 
that doesn't fit any of those circles. Something must have happened for Paul to break out of those circles and follow Jesus. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this in another first century letter. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Just stop there for a second. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Like, why would he even say that? Why would he feel he has to say that? Why, why the disclaimer? Why, why the disclaimer? You know, like, if one of you guys say, if one of you guys after the gathering were, ch- were chatting and uh, talking and they said, here's my daughter and this is my daughter, Julia, but just let me be clear. I'm not ashamed of her. You're like, why, why are you telling me that? Right? So I maybe with one of our volunteers, there's a guest at church Westside today, and I'm like, hey, this is one of our volunteers in Kitswest. I'm not ashamed of them. I just want you to know. <laughs> like, that would be weird. Why does Paul have this disclaimer to say, but I, I want you to know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because many people struggled over a crucified Lord. Many people struggled over the fact that the God of the universe, his path and plan to reconcile the world, to make the world right, to seek justice, was a crucified Lord. It's crazy. So Paul sets out this disclaimer. I just, I want you to know, I'm not ashamed of this message. Might be crazy to you. I'm not ashamed of it. N.T. Wright says, these words, the Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing and power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom, a kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and the wise, if not more. Go back to those circles, the religious circle and the secular circle. What they were really, really good at was excluding people. What they were really, like, what was their MO? No, 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 you're not, you're not meant for this circle. This is our circle. You can't really be in this circle because you don't fit the bill. And the, the smart, elite, you know, intellectuals, no, no, you're not in this circle. You don't get this wisdom. You, you know, you're not smart enough to be here, and it's not worth it for you anyways. Trust me, we'll figure it out for you. And so these two circles were both exclusive Yet the message of the crucifixion that God in Christ humbles himself, yells loudly, anyone is welcome. Anyone is welcome. doesn't matter what circle you're in. The gospel breaks through your circle. Anyone is welcome. And it wasn't the elite only, the religious only, the intellects only, the whatever only, the I wearing a green tag on St. Patty's Day only. You know, it's like, it's not that. It's not that. It's everyone. Everyone. Look over. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Kids Quest. I love this. Um, Listen, listen to what Paul says. It's awesome. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Now he's speaking to these, this church in Corinth that they didn't fit in those circles. They felt left out. They were tempted to maybe like, maybe I should have a name. You know, maybe, maybe I should buy more likes on Facebook and on Twitter so I could have a platform. You know, something like that. And listen to what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not, not many influential, not many were noble of birth. I know it sounds a little negative at first, but listen. But God, what an amazing 
two lines, two, two words, and that's going to come back in, in our series later on in another section. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and, dis, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Just those, those three words at the end, is, we're going to look at that in the next few weeks. These words are big words. It's righteousness, justice, making things right, or holiness, being set apart for God's purpose. Uh, redemption, being rescued. It's part of, part of what the, the cross accomplished and the bigness of that. We're going to look at that. But do you see what Paul does? It's like, hey, you weren't in this circle? You weren't in one of these circles? No, no, the crucified Lord. The one who humiliated himself. The way God came into this world, that's for you. So no one can boast. I love what John writes in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This is a verse we'll look at later in the series too. He is the atoning sacrifice. We're going to talk about atonement in the next couple of weeks. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But I love this. And not only for yours, like just in case you're wondering, the people he's writing to, not only for yours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's for everybody. See, and so, so Paul gets, he gets so excited sharing this message. He gets so excited with this countercultural, upside-down, subverted, bottom-up type of message of the crucified Lord. It, 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 was, it was scandalous to the religious people. It was silliness to the intellectual people, but Paul is excited about it because he is seen it work in him and in others. And it comes to this last little bit I want to share. And this idea, verse 18 talks about this. It says, Paul says, the message of the cross, or some versions might say the word of the cross. It's not just a word. It's not just content. You know, it's not just something you copied and pasted and sent to a friend by text. There's something inside the word. There's something inside the message that Paul says has so much power. Fleming Rutledge says that this word is a living reality that transforms and stirs and interrupts. That's what this message does. It gets inside people and it shakes people up and it interrupts our lives and it stirs us and it brings transformation. And Paul says, well, you know, it, feel, it seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, to those who have rejected God and just said, look, I'm cool without you. It seems like foolishness to them. But he says, to those who believe Oh, it's another story altogether. Listen to what he says in in just a few verses in this chapter. He says, it's the power of God for those of us being saved. It's the power of God and and the wisdom of God. And then he says later in chapter 2, this has come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Somehow when Paul says this, preaches this, you know, shares this, something's happening in people, sometimes even miracles. And this is the beautiful thing. Paul knows this by experience. Despite his religion, despite his intellect, he didn't come to know God through worldly wisdom, but through this crazy announcement that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And the way he did it, crucifixion. Crucifixion. Paul says in verse 25, he comes to this realization in verse 25, he says, for the foolishness of God is what? Just say it. It's what? 
And then the next word, a little bit stronger, okay? And the wisdom of God. And the weakness of God is what? Wiser and stronger. Wiser than human wisdom, stronger than human strength. That's the power of the cross communicated. The power of the crucified Lord. Here's a few more words from from N.T. Wright. He, He says, when this announcement is made, people discover to their astonishment that things change. New communities come into being, consisting of people grasped by the message, believing it's true despite everything, falling in love with the God they found to be alive in Jesus, giving Jesus their supreme loyalty. It's amazing what takes place. And Paul comes to this conclusion in chapter 2. We'll just read these, these four or five verses. And look what he says. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. So Paul's saying, I didn't use that kind of method. I used this other simpler method. And then he says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But did you catch that middle section in, in yellow there? Paul is like he's decided. He's excited. He's committed. He says, I resolved. I'm committed. I've understood. I'm, I'm just going in this direction to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is resolute. He's like, I'm resolved to share this because this message changes people This message is the the crazy way that God decided to to change your life and to change this world. My last anti-right quote. (laughs) How easy, and just put yourself in this, in their time period in first century as a Christian, how easy it would have been for the early Christians to tone down the fact of the cross, to highlight instead the life-giving force of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. How sensible or insert the word efficient, smart, strategic, how sensible it might have been to draw a discreet veil over the manner of Jesus' death that had preceded his sudden new life. I mean, honestly, why not, right? Like, he rose from the dead. Why talk about his death? Everybody dies, but he rose from the dead. But no, we're still talking about his death. There's something about his death. And and then he he continues, over against this downplaying or mocking we also see from the earliest documents of the New Testament right through the first six centuries of church history, the resolute affirmation of the cross, not as an embarrassing episode best, best left on the margins, but as the mysterious key to the meaning of life, God, the world, and human destiny. See, something happened When God in Christ, humiliated, degraded, was crucified on a cross, something happened. It led to things like justice and holiness and redemption, which we'll get to in the next few weeks. But I have a feeling, I have a feeling that it's bigger than we think it is. I have a feeling that it's bigger than we understand it. I have a feeling that it's bigger than than the way we explain it. I have a feeling that it's bigger than the way we like to rationalize it. Because it was bigger, it was bigger than for them. They didn't realize how big it was. Only in retrospect, only in seeing people's lives change, did they say, oh my gosh, this is bigger than we realize. 
And I can imagine Paul wrestling. I'm the religious guy. I know all this stuff about faith. I can even make the connections with Jesus the Messiah. I'm the smart guy. I've gone to school. I'm educated. I'm going to use all these things to expand God's kingdom. And when he does that, it doesn't really work. It doesn't happen. It fails. And then yet, here's Paul, the religious guy, the secular smart guy. He's like, I'm going to talk to you about a crucified Lord. Boom. Something happens. Because there's power in the word of the cross. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Next few weeks, we're going to explore, um, jump into this theme, what happened on the cross, why the crucifixion matters, what it means that Jesus was this atoning sacrifice for sin and sins, plural, and sin as a force. But really, my hope for us as we move forward from today, um, would we move forward? I just invite you to move forward with openness, move forward with uh, an openness to, the, to the, the work of the Spirit in our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want to work in us and elevate um, the beautiful, beautiful power of the cross in our lives and in our church community and what that may mean for the world around us. That's my hope for you. I invite you to join us, to, to open yourselves up, to discover, to allow fresh revelation as we, we, we move into this next week. And maybe you're for the first time and you're like, wow, what do I do with that? I, I, this is a new message for me. I would just say, just, would you explore with us next week? Would you jump into the message a little more? Would you jump into the purpose a little more? Would you, would you just discover with us? And I believe God's going to do something so powerful in you as we walk through this. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for your wisdom, your strength, The Apostle Paul wrote chapters and chapters of doctrine in, the, in his letter to the Romans. The only words he can say as he comes to the end of that is, oh, the depths, oh, the depths of your wisdom. God, I know we're just at the cusp of starting this series today, and I, and I, but I pray that you would captivate our hearts and minds. God, may we lean in to discover beautiful, powerful work on the cross. What was done, not just on our behalf, yes, on our behalf, but for something even bigger. God, keep us open to what that is. And we just say welcome to that, Lord. And and we just end by glorifying you in your infinite wisdom. Despite the the religious circles, despite the intellectual circles, despite the fact that the, the crucifixion would be scandalous to a religious mind and silly to an intellectual mind. Your wisdom can break into all of that. And we just state today that we trust your wisdom. We trust your power. We trust your strength. We trust your plan. In that plan, you're at work. You're revolutionizing hearts and lives. We want to be part of that, God. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.